0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Are you there? Come out from under your blanket. It'll be okay. Uh, every angle and an update of COVID-19, what it is doing to Canada and how we are all coping. And we'll get through it. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Gordon Holden, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta. And he is with us now. Gordon, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. A pleasure. Uh, We are hearing good news out of China in the sense that uh, they're starting to lift the lockdown in and around uh, Hubei and Wuhan and such. Uh, My first question is, can we believe their numbers? And the second, what can we learn from them as they slowly come out of this?
1: Well, there's always a question. Your first question is, can you believe the the numbers? Um, Chinese statistics have a historical tendency to be somewhat biased, selective. And not necessarily reliable. Uh, But in this instance, they've been so heavily criticized, both internationally and domestically. I tend to believe they are on the rebound, and that is that the reopenings are taking place and that these are warranted by declining numbers and rates of infection. And and this is very good news for the rest of us, i.e., the system can, the, the virus can be broken or at least pushed back. And
0: what about learning from them? What can we learn from them as we're entering into it, they're coming out of it?
1: Well, this is, this is a good question. They've got some unique characteristics in their society that will never apply here in the sense of social control, the ability to monitor people's movements through facial recognition and tracking of their phones. People's cell phones in China give them a color grid, which tells them a color indicator whether they're able to go out, whether they're able to travel green, yellow, red. And unless you have that green, you're, you're basically stuck. Uh, they've also had just more drastic measures, more drastically imposed than elsewhere. One member, I talked to one of our people who came back early from Wuhan. He's perfectly healthy, been through his long quarantine, etc. here, self-isolation. He said that one member of the family was allowed to go out to shop every third day. And this was enforced. And there were pretty strict penalties if you were caught outside of that net. So I guess part of the lesson we could learn, though, is, well, we may not be able to track people as effectively that getting the lockdown or getting the um, social measures in place early helps prevent the spread and that delay makes it that much more difficult. And that was the problem with Hubei province, province with the size of a country in terms of population. It really got badly loose there, and it was very hard to put things back in the box. And those people were leaving and spreading it through other parts of China. But right now, talking to some people who are some people in our government who who speak to our embassy regularly, they say the chances of getting it in Beijing now are negligible because it's been curbed. So I think the lessons really are: don't be afraid to take the strong measures early, do them tough, and ironically, you may be able to get back to normal faster than if you sort of half-impose them or you don't enforce them
0: was the we certainly see how this is affecting north america canada and the united states virtually all corners of of the countries will eventually show signs of this did this affect china the same way was all of china shut down the way we're seeing with other countries
1: yes and no it appeared in every single one of the chinese provinces um eventually very slow to get into tibet and and a couple other provinces but it was found everywhere as is the case in Canada as well, uh, but the the lockdowns were pretty general, but more strictly applied in Hubei because they knew that that was the, the nest of the infection, the concentration, the epicenter. It's a very big epicenter, Wuhan, city of 11 million, um, a province of tens of millions. But the the measures were were countrywide, and they included limits on movement, working from home. But a lot of factories are still operating. And uh, the people I spoke to, talked to our embassy, said that 80% of the restaurants in Shanghai are open again. They're not very crowded because people are still wary of going out, but they're in recovery mode. But that's after a period of, of sharp lockdown. And I think that whether not everything they do works for us, but it does give me a measure of hope that there is light at the end of the tunnel after a few weeks or a couple months. Keep in mind, this was spreading pretty quickly in China in January, uh, and we're now late March, that two or three months with the right measures can maybe do the trick. Does
0: China owe the world a statement um, uh, for the chaos that they've created around the world? Do they owe some sort of explanation, apology, compensation? What's their position on what has happened here? What has unfolded in the rest of the world?
1: Well, I doubt they're ever going to pay compensation, but they do need to give an apology and an explanation. And the problem there is that while they were Quicker to become public with it than with SARS, where they, they hid it for months. In this case, yep. they hid it for for a few weeks, which would have been crucial time for others to have learned from it. And they also haven't been very open about. They were at the very beginning when they're talking about how it emerged, presumably from a wildlife market in in Wuhan, but they've been very silent on that point since. And even a few Chinese. Well, I thought the whole government has tried to blame the United States or some outside power, um, Italy or something. You know, it's pretty clear this originated in Hubei, or at least that's where it first spread and became prominent. They've closed permanently, they say, the wildlife markets. Well, that's what helped cause the SARS epidemic um, some 17 years ago. And now they, the same wildlife markets, unregulated largely and chaotic, were responsible for this. So yes, they owe an apology. On the other hand, um, I don't agree with those people who call it a Chinese visa, a Chinese virus rather. I mean, it could happen anywhere. Other viruses have appeared in other countries, mm-hmm. and uh, there, 20% of the world's population, at least that percentage of the world's diseases are going to emerge there probably. So I'm, I'm in the middle on that. But yes, they should make a statement. They should own up to the fact that they were a little bit slow in announcing it. On the other hand, I would target Western countries who were more than a little bit slow in taking the drastic measures. Um, We had a pretty good fix by the end of January that this was coming, and a lot of these measures, perhaps if applied earlier, might have been more effective.
0: Gordon Holden is with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta. Gordon, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Take care. Thank you, Scott. All right. Let's find out what's happening south of the border and bring in Reggie Jacchini Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. And he is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. Uh, Reggie, your thoughts on uh, the president's response. We're understanding today in regard to COVID-19. He wants the American economy uh, back up running by Easter. Is that realistic? Uh, how is this how is this uh, position being viewed?
2: Well, I mean, it raises questions as to what the president's ultimate goal is when he says he wants the country to reopen. Is it because uh, he fears that a stall in the economy is going to make it more difficult for America to bounce back once this virus threat is over? Or is he using this as a possible political motive to say that he needs the economy to bounce back up again in order for him to uh, guarantee himself a potential re-election later this year, because he spent three years of his presidency uh, in the glory of what was a once stellar economy but the idea of opening up the uh up the economy by easter goes against the advice of his own medical experts on his coronavirus task force team and it also goes against the latest words from the world health organization that shows that the u.s is likely going to become an epicenter for the virus in the next few weeks
0: uh on that note you talked about the staff and we've seen his press conferences and and such and the people he brings forward dr fauci i believe it was has he been replaced he was uh the man that was sort of the go-to guy in all of this
2: he has been the go-to guy and he is one of the most respected people uh in washington dc uh in anything to do uh, in the medical field uh, he holds a high position at the national institutes of health as the the go-to infectious diseases person uh the president says that uh dr fauci simply wasn't at the last few briefings because they rotate in and out and you'll notice if we were watching yesterday uh the attorney general decided to be at yesterday's press briefing the president right. though says that fauci hasn't been replaced that he likes him very much but we also know what happens when the president says that he likes someone oftentimes they find themselves uh, being shown towards the door. That said, Dr. Fauci has been uh, kind of a, a calming voice in the room during these press briefings. The president oftentimes will spout uh, a factual inaccuracy, and Dr. Fauci will do what he can to try and rectify the statement that the president made uh, that p- could potentially cause error. That said, we're just going to have to wait and see whether or not Fauci is able to make any more public appearances as a part of that task force.
0: How are Americans viewing the leadership of Donald Trump at at this time? I mean, obviously, he's a very divisive guy. He even takes his own executives within his own company and sort of pits them against each other, we have heard. Uh, And and that's pretty much his campaign is dividing people. Now we're in a point in in the world where people need to unite. Can he do that? Uh, how, How are Americans viewing his leadership at this point?
2: Well, I mean, it's different than how they view him as their political leader, as to how they view him as the leader during this health crisis. The latest polls from ABC and Ipsos show that uh, on average, 53 percent of Americans feel okay with the way that the president has been handling this virus. Now, that poll wrapped up last weekend. It doesn't take into account anything that's taken place uh, from the president's words over the last couple of days. But it also is uh, it raises questions as to, uh, you know, the actual thought process towards Americans. The president uh, has been accused of acting too little too late when it comes to this pandemic, not dealing with any of the uh, uh, efforts to roll out equipment across the country uh, in a timely fashion. Uh, And now here we are with the president saying that he wants to reopen the company, uh, uh, open the country, rather, in just a matter of weeks. You know, that could have an impact on how people actually perceive the president. But as of right now, more than half the country says that he's doing an okay job.
0: Uh, I guess no surprises there. I mean, that's the way it's been uh, right up uh, since he's been elected. Uh, That being said, where is America now? What is next? What is what's the biggest challenge moving forward through the rest of this week?
2: Well, the biggest challenge is going to be dealing with New York State. I mean, it is the epicenter of the outbreak across this country right now, sitting with more than 25,000 reported cases, a death toll that's reported to be over 200. Uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, offered a scathing review of how the federal government's been acting over the last couple of weeks, saying that they offered 400 ventilators to the state, even though the state needs 30,000. And there are 20,000 currently sitting in federal stockpiles. Uh, also saying that the federal government's been slow to respond on any kind of needs for uh, continued personal protective equipment. Uh, I think that's going to be the biggest challenge for the country going forward. There simply is a dwindling supply of gowns, masks, uh, and other equipment that healthcare officials need. And despite the fact the president has signed legislation, or at least a law, that allows him to compel companies to create and manufacture uh, goods that would be needed during a crisis, He hasn't actually acted on that yet, and that is uh, kind of grinding the nerves on a lot of state governors right now.
0: Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Take care. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. How are local Hamilton manufacturers wanting to step up and help during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Joe Camillo is the owner of Nico Apparel Solutions and is with us now. Joe, thanks for the time. Much
3: appreciated. Good afternoon, Scott. Thanks for having me.
0: So how did this all start? How did you get in contact with government? Uh, What exactly is going on?
3: Well, I mean, obviously, everyone obviously can see and hear what's happening on, and not just in our community, but in the world. And it was um, the Prime Minister's announcement last week when... He basically made the call out to all manufacturers to uh, possibly pivot and look to uh, ways to help combat uh, COVID-19 and repurpose some of our manufacturing. So when he mentioned again uh, the manufacturing of masks, gloves, uh, gowns, I I thought, okay, it sounds really interesting. And then when they um, afterwards had mentioned about a website, I, I then, on that Friday, I on the website, I contacted my MP, uh, Philomena Tassi, and the wheels started to, to
1: move. And what do
0: you normally produce?
3: I manufacture, I manufacture sportswear. So mm-hmm. I have two businesses, Nico Apparel, which is, which is the one located in Hamilton, which manufactures items in sports such as rowing. We do the Olympic rowing team, National Dragon Boat canoe and kayak. We do a lot of local hockey associations. I also have a preparatory line of protection products uh, under the name Aegis. We have about 40 people here and been doing it for about 24 years. So we, we basically do a lot of custom manufacturing development. My other business, um, Brigada Sport, we actually sell all over the world and we sell rowing products. So all the products, our sewers, our seamstresses make product that mm. are shipped to Australia, Japan, Switzerland, you name it, we do it, and um, of course, with everything turning down, you have to be creative and then you have to respond to the needs so that's on that Friday I submitted the the query on the website, and from that point on, we've had a number of people from industry uh, Canada contact us uh, going through the process of vetting manufacturers to determine how easily or difficult it would be to to switch to manufacture the the much needed uh, surgical masks and gowns, et cetera, that are required for our frontline health workers.
0: So what stage are you at now, Joe?
3: So right now, at this point, what's happening is they're going through a series of questions with manufacturers or um, line items to see how difficult it would be to to switch over. Because as you know, Scott, as of midnight tonight, all non-essential businesses shut down. So, what we're doing right now is by the hour, we being in contact with Hamilton Health Science, with Ontario Centres of Excellence, with, of course, our uh, federal ministry of industry to determine what would be required to switch to manufacture the products. So the two that we're at would be the uh, surgical mask and the gowns. So what materials are required? What are the order of, you know, what are the procedures? What specifications that you have? Because there are... Uh, American standards and testing methods that are required to pass. So, we're working with our partners at McMaster to see how quickly we can make this product. So, it could be quick, it could be a day, it could be a couple of days, it could be a week.
0: So, when do you expect to hear more on all of this, Joe?
3: I hope so. I think, even though I'm not like you, we all work remotely, like today's our last day, but our hope is that. Um, you know, I just had an emergency room doc uh, from one of the hospitals contact me. He's a friend of mine. He said, "Joe, we're out of masks. We need them. We desperately need them. It is really important that we step up." And I can tell you that our staff here we have close to 40, as mentioned, and we really want to help. So
4: hmm.
3: we'll answer the call. We have to make sure that we follow the guidelines and we follow the procedures. And and that fortunately, you have to you have to follow the rules. So we're just. We're waiting and responding as needed.
0: Joe Camillo has been with us. Uh, Nico Apparel Solutions, uh, just one of the many Hamilton companies that are answering the call and stepping up to help us get through this COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for the time and insight. Good luck to you and your company in helping all of this.
3: Keep safe to all your listeners.
0: All right, in case you weren't aware, uh, new information coming out in regard to the Hamilton Conservation uh, Authority and uh, closing. Uh, We've certainly heard about social distancing and parks and playgrounds and such. To talk more about all of this uh, from the board, let's bring in Councillor Lloyd Ferguson. Lloyd, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated.
5: Thank you for having me on, Scott.
0: So what is the latest information coming out from the Hamilton Conservation Authority?
5: Well, we struggled with this for quite a while, and... uh We've been watching the conservation areas over the weekend. Uh, Our neighbors went uh, last week. Uh, Halton was first going out to announce their closing uh, their conservation areas, parks, trails. Uh, Grand River soon followed. They are two closest neighbors, and uh, so we observed over the weekend, and there was large crowds coming out. And maybe it was it's it's we fully understand people's desire to get out in the open, Uh, fresh air, and exercise is good for your mental health and and our public health department confirmed that for me. But um, we noticed that there wasn't a lot of social distancing, uh, particularly on the trails and at the waterfalls. Uh, people were packing in together. They are all touching handrails, and uh, our staff got quite concerned about the large crowds that were coming out. I, I made a point of, I, I am uh, uh, home uh, self-isolating myself right now, because I flew back from the U.S. last Wednesday, but I did get my car, stayed in my car, and <clears throat> put nobody else in it. And I went out and viewed for myself, and all our parking lots were full over the weekend. But, uh, I so were
0: there more actually more people this weekend than in past weekends, because more were just trying to get out?
5: Oh, considerably more than typically see in March. It's what you would see during the fall color time. Um, um, you know, they were parking on the on the roads again, which was a problem last fall, and we had to start shuttles running in from Christie's. There's no question the public found this desire to go out and walk the trails and get some fresh air was important to them, and we don't disagree with that. But, you know, they're all pushing the button to get the tickets for their cars in the parking lot, you know, to mm-hmm. pick their times or walking, holding handrails as they go downstairs or across bridges. But most important, they were... They were um, Getting together in large groups as they get out to places like the Dundas Peak and Tiffany and and uh, Albion and uh, Webster's Falls are the ones that I observed. But the, uh, the, the cruncher came yesterday or this morning, first thing this morning, when we were not listed on the um, excluded businesses that could stay open. Uh, Conservation Authority trails and parks were not listed. So we interpret that to mean that we must close. And couple that with the problem with social distancing, the large crowds, uh, in consultation with public health, in consultation with our emergency operations center, our parking staff, our bylaw staff, and of course a number of our conservation authority staff, we made the decision this morning that we're going to have to close at the end of day to day. Uh, I know an, an inconvenience that will be for the public. But they're still able to get out in their neighborhoods and walk on the sidewalks and get exercise and get fresh air. And, um, you know, we're going to be monitoring this day by day to see what happens. One thing I want to encourage everyone, uh, if you drive out, uh, the parking lots will be locked. Uh, Don't park on the road because by law enforcement says they will be doing enforcement of the special enforcement areas where Mm -hmm. it's dangerous to have people parked on the road because emergency vehicles can't get through. And uh, it's, it's, it's difficult for cars to pass. And and so I'd encourage you not to expose yourself to a $250 fine by going out there.
0: Uh, what about uh, those that may have purchased? We're getting some calls from listeners about those that had purchased passes. Uh, will they be reimbursed in any way for this?
5: You know, we haven't made that decision. Certainly, they're not able to go out. And, and that was a, a key reason why we didn't open it up free when we uh, uh, had a conversation about this over a week ago. We were being... Encouraged by some members of council to open it up free access, uh, what we did is took all our staff out, uh, so there's nobody at the gates. And uh, but we were concerned that that would be uh, create a problem for We sold about 6,000 passes so far for the season, and so we haven't had a conversation with them. They'll be, uh, I suspect, what we'll do, but the board has to make this decision. We'll extend the time into 2021 that they've lost in 2020 as a result of this and the passes won't have to be renewed until that time is expired. But we'll just need board ratification to do that.
0: Lloyd, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Take care.
5: Anytime. Thanks. It seems whenever we have world events like the one we're
0: experiencing now with COVID-19, the conspiracy theorists uh, come out of the woodwork, it appears, and uh, look for any reason to not believe the truth. It seems whether it's uh, 9-11, whether it's landing on the moon, or whether it's even coronavirus. Some are very skeptical about how it originated and where it started and what really could have happened behind the scenes. Let's bring in Jeremy Cohen. He's uh, uh, religious studies uh, with Religious Studies, McBasta University, and is with us now. Jeremy, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. So why are some so quick to look at conspiracy theories whenever there's some sort of event like this happening in the world?
4: Um, I think there are quite a few reasons um, and quite a few historical antecedents to these sorts of things. But at a base level, I think that conspiracy theories and things like alternative medicine and these nature cures that you're seeing for the coronavirus, I think that it offers something reassuring to people. Um, they make promises that there that you know a cure is in our hands. You just need to take some supplements. You know, you need to eat healthy and anything that's wrong with you is going to be cured.
0: Is this based in religion? Is it linked to religion in some way?
4: A lot of the... Or does it have to be? It doesn't have to be at all. Um, I think that some religious studies scholars, such as myself, would look at conspiracy theory movements as being a religious movement and many of the religious movements that i research tend to be um, very much connected to conspiratorial thinking
0: is it lack of information that causes this in other words uh, people don't find out the truth and they start making up their own theory
4: in a way i think it might actually be the opposite i think that it's an overload of information Um, one of the things that the internet has done you know, before, before the internet, conspiracy theorists used to be rather segmented. So you were a 9-11 truther, you were um, uh, a moon hoaxer, but because of the internet and all of the information that we have now, all of these theories are connected and all of this information is readily accessible. You just have to Google it and it's there.
0: We're seeing lots of divisiveness in our politics, I guess, prior to this. We're seeing a, a lot of uh, p- a parties uniting now, which is great to see our leadership uniting. But there was certainly a lot of divisiveness in the world prior to this. We certainly see that with the president of the United States. Does that fuel this?
4: I think so. And and I think more than divisiveness, I think that it speaks to authority and who we look to for trustworthy information. And I think as Canadians, often we look at someone like Donald Trump and you know we shake our head at his tweets and at his press conferences. But there are millions of people who look to him as an authoritative voice. So if he's telling an audience that the virus is a hoax or that malaria medication is going to cure coronavirus, there are millions of people who are going to listen to his advice.
0: The fact that he appears to question even uh, uh, his own uh, his own institutions and stu- and, and such, and you know, has always painted the picture of fake news and and so on and so forth, this just fuels this sort of behavior, does it not?
4: Absolutely, um, and I think it in a way it speaks to how ubiquitous a lot of these ideas are becoming now, where. In many, you know, we are all familiar with these sorts of conspiracy theories. We're familiar with the idea of aliens and moon hoaxes and and whatnot, and and medical conspiracy theories as well, and alternative medicine. And to have it coming from the presidential pulpit just adds to the respectability of these sorts of ideas, which can be potentially dangerous.
0: What advice do you have for all of us during times like this? Who be do you informed, believe?
4: Listen to the
0: scientists,
4: listen to medical professionals. Um, I mean, and, and that information can be hard to find um, on the Internet. It is often mixed in with a lot of disinformation. But I think that we need to be as informed as as we possibly can. And we need to, to fact check the sources um, that, you know, we need to fact check where we're getting our information from
0: jeremy fascinating topic we'd like to talk to you more on this we'll uh, rebook you again jeremy cohen has been with us, religious studies mcmaster university talking about some of the conspiracy theories circulating around this coronavirus jeremy thanks so much for the time much appreciated thank you very much have a great day you're listening to the scott thompson show podcast on 900 chml all right let's bring in Ian lee sprott school of business carlton university he is with us now ian thank you for the time much appreciated my pleasure scott Uh, Before we get into the closure of uh, the businesses that uh, will shutter tonight at midnight, uh, your thought on the Prime Minister's press conference earlier on today, uh, obviously taking a much stronger tone uh, today and yesterday than he did on Friday. Your thoughts on what he's saying to the Canadian people?
6: Um, I've got mixed views, to be frank, because um, I'm in that minority. Um, uh, Thomas Friedman yesterday in the New York Times, the... Pulitzer prize-winning their superstar there dr katz a very famous public health doctor at yale university uh, another a very uh, well-known epidemiologist at stanford university are arguing that uh, we may be overdoing it and i mean by that that's not to trivialize this coronavirus is very serious and it kills people there's no question about it uh, but their argument is we're not all equally at risk that's their central argument. Their, their central argument is we absolutely have to isolate people who are high risk. That means people over 65, people with compromised immune systems, people with diabetes. Like there's a whole range of, 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 of uh, people who are at risk. And he says for sure they have to be isolated in, in, uh, and to protect them from the general public. And he says, yes, we have to test. These doctors argue we need to test, test, test. But they're arguing that uh, large numbers of people are not going to become sick uh, in any meaningful way. And they're arguing we can't, that the destruction to the economy is even greater. And, and it's going to be more problematic for people because people do have to eat. That's a health issue, too, by the way. So this isn't about health versus wealth, as some people are saying. This is about short-term health versus longer-term health not well. It appears
0: though Ian, that we do not have enough tests to test everyone at that t- at this time because otherwise we could just be isolating those that test positive and not but those he argued, that don't. You don't need to test so everyone. if we don't if we don't have if we can't test everyone then but how Scott, do we not arguing.
6: If, in the op-ed I urge everyone listening yeah. today to read it. Dr. Katz is it was published 2 days ago in the New York Times. Um, and as well as there were actually four different uh, articles in the New York Times by uh, distinguished medical doctors at Stanford, Harvard, Yale. And they're arguing that you do not need to test everybody. Everybody is not equally at risk. They said we should be testing those who are high-risk people. And we know who they are, he said, because of the data that came out of China. And uh, he said we can't, unless we try and lock everyone down, everyone, including obviously essential services, which we can't do, then, then he says there's going to be people out there who are, are carriers. And so his point was we should be trying to minimize uh, death and minimize overwhelming the healthcare care system uh, because that's what's happened in, in Italy. And so he's talking about a very, very sophisticated form of triage uh, whereby uh, young people uh, who are overwhelmingly very healthy and are not having the same experience with the coronavirus as people like me. I'm and for anyone listening who says, Well that's easy for you to say you're a young guy or a younger guy. I'm triply at risk. I'm over sixty five, I'm a male and I take immunosuppressive drugs from my arthritis. So <laughs> if anything I should be, you know, saying, Yeah, put everybody into quarantine and, and I I'm what I'm worried about is the complete destruction of the economy, and, and I'm a tenured professor, I want to assure you my paycheck goes in no matter what, so this isn't about my self-interest, it's precisely not about my self-interest. I'm worried about all those young people out there who are losing their jobs. Some of these, many of these businesses are, if we don't get them back to work fairly soon, are going to disappear. Those jobs will vanish. And there's no country in the world, not even the United States, can subsidize every corporation and every person in the economy. They don't have enough wealth, and they don't have enough money, they don't have enough resources. And so he argues for a much more strategic, targeted approach, rather than the blunderbuss shotgun approach, everybody shall go home, except essential services.
0: What What would that look like, though,
6: Ian? Well, he's uh, he is arguing, for example, that um, you, you test those people who are the most vulnerable. You start by testing them. You don't assume that everybody in the population is equally at risk. If you're young and you're healthy and you're fit, you know, uh, without getting into the details, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm quoting Dr. Katz, and I'm also quoting the other two doctors that published in their op-ed, but they're saying, you, do, you you start out by just targeting the most vulnerable members of society and for sure put in procedures to protect them. So stop people from going into nursing homes, stop people from going to hospitals unless they're patients. You know? So in other words,
0: isolate the most vulnerable instead of everybody. That, Is that what you're instead saying?
6: Instead of isolating everybody else that's not vulnerable, he's arguing isolate all the people that are the most vulnerable in order to protect them. And, and he argues that this is going to allow the rest of the population to continue to function and to work, and it will uh, focus the resources where they're most needed on the people that are the most vulnerable. And when you look at the stats, he argued coming out of China, coming out of Italy, overwhelmingly, the people, even the younger people that were hearing some stories, some, uh, some accounts, some reporting of some younger people, that are dying, in many, many instances, they had uh, compromised immune systems. Uh, they were taking immunosuppressive drugs, uh, like me, <laughs> uh, or they were, uh, had, had a bout of cancer. And uh, in other words, he says, we can, we can ask people to identify, you know, we assume everyone over 65 is vulnerable, we assume everybody with compromised immune systems who uh, are taking any kind of immunosuppressive drugs, including prednisone, which is a type of steroid, um, are, are, and so you target them rather than trying to shut down the totality of the society. Because it, their point was what do you do after you shut it down for three months? You were playing that clip from Marvin Ryder. He says, oh, look, and by the way, I like him. I respect him. But he said, okay, after three months, the hurricane's gone away. Well, there's no proof that the hurricane's gone away. That's the point. Mr. Trudeau said just a moment ago, I watched him. He says, we do not know how long this is going to last. Well, no country can literally shut down the entire society and the entire economy indefinitely into the future. Yes, a week. Yes, a month. Yes, two months. But I don't think we can do it indefinitely. And so that calls for... Targeting the most vulnerable and testing them, not the whole society. There's many, many people that don't need to be tested. And is is their argument. And um, I know this goes contrary, but these are very Dr. Katz is a very distinguished professor, as is the professor at Stanford who wrote in his his uh, op-ed yesterday. As are the two professors from uh, from Harvard and Yale. So there's, as I said, there's three different op-eds right now by very senior and distinguished doctors in the states arguing that. The the uh, shotgun approach of uh, going after trying to you know uh, uh, incarcerate not incarcerate but uh, um, uh, quarantine everybody is simply not sustainable and it's going to cause great damage to the economy and meaning to jobs that people need to live and and I it's it we should at least have a debate on this.
0: Uh, so you were you were suggesting in these articles suggesting that isolate those that are in the high risk category as opposed to everyone else. Now that this is in the general population, is it too late for that?
6: Well, he argued, uh, he, and again I'm paraphrasing Dr. Katz. He argued that uh, incar- he, uh, Sorry, I keep saying incarcerate. Uh, Quarantine people for two weeks. He says he supported the idea of doing very short term incarceration for two weeks. Then in that two-week period, people will discover, some people in the, will discover that they're sick, and they will be tested, and then they can be isolated. So he said use that two-week quarantine of just about everybody in society to determine who is sick. At that point, you'll have a very good idea. If we all go into quarantine, save and accept those, and obviously emergency services and police and ambulance and health care and, and, and that sort of thing. He says you'll have a very good idea who is Sick and who isn't. Then you quarantine them for an additional period of time, and of course, you treat them. And so that was his argument. You use the two week quarantine to determine who is sick across the country. And then you isolate those people in addition to the high risk people that we've already discussed. And he calls this strategic, um, um, his phrase is here at the end of the op-ed, um, I think he called it strategic um, intervention or strategic surgery or something like that. Um, I do urge people to read this remarkable, this remarkable, um, this, uh, remarkable uh, interview, uh, sorry, op-ed that he wrote. Uh, he said, a more this is his final line in his op-ed, a more surgical approach is required to address the coronavirus. And uh, so um, uh, he argues that this approach isn't even going to succeed because it is a blunderbuss approach. And, of course, there's so many exceptions, which is what you and I were going to talk about, that you cannot avoid. I mean, you can't close down the grocery stores. You can't close down the pharmacies. You know, you can't close down essential services, and I mean by essential, you know, hospitals, um, uh, people in uh, d- providing emergency services, and some of those people will get sick uh, or they're living with other people, and so it'll, it'll, it'll go through the population anyways. So, the, the, um, you know, when you're talking a country of uh, 330 million in the States and 38 million in Canada, um, we can quarantine for a short period of time, and he's not opposed to that, and neither am I. What I'm saying is the idea is out there now, I think. And that's why I said I had trouble with what the prime minister was saying. He said, we'll go and do it for as long as it takes. And some people have actually mused out loud. uh, I believe it was a Canadian cabinet minister who said 18 months. So I'm going to throw a question to everybody, to you and to everybody else. Can we shut down an entire society for 18 months? And I don't think you can.
0: That being said, that. with what uh, the Premier announced yesterday in Ontario, um, is it really shut down? Because what it appears in, in late yesterday, uh, the list came out, was leaked out about yeah. what is actually staying open. Yeah. And really, it seems Everything that is staying open that doesn't have some sort of retail experience or some sort of experience where everyone is in a group together. So anyone that can work from home, anyone that practices social or safe distancing is pretty much open. So how much does this really affect the province? I mean, because it's really not a full closure.
6: I do agree with you, Scott. I read the list very closely, carefully last night, and then I, I, I saw another copy or an, uh, an an enhanced list this morning. I went over it very, very carefully, and I thought it's it was easier to
0: list what isn't open than rather what is.
6: Yeah, I mean they've clearly closed. Um, I do not. I want to be careful with my words, but. Um, I, I don't want to use the word essential because then I'm just going around in circles, and I don't want to use the word frivolous. I don't think it's frivolous to go to a museum but it, uh, uh, or or a library. I mean, they're very mm-hmm. important institutions, but it's not essential in the short run. You know, right. your, your, your life is not um, uh, prob- made problematic because you didn't go to the library this week or to a museum this week, whereas they've kept open the supply chain. I think you mm-hmm. get, there's a gro- we can make. I can make a gross generalization that these, uh, that the uh, governor of Ontario uh, kept open the more important. Let's use that word. More important yeah. aspects of business. You know, nail salons closed, barbers. You know, hair salons closed, right. but uh, supply chains of materials uh, to build new hospitals or to build schools or what you know, the construction business. They're outside. It's. It, I think. As someone who's done a lot of renovations over the years and my own brother is a owns a contracting company in Thunder Bay I think it is easier I didn't say it's easy but it's easier yeah. to uh, practice uh, social distancing because you're working outside and you're not you know hugging each other when you're a carpenter or you're a plumber and and I've been on construction sites and it, I think it's easier I didn't say it's, it's perfect but it's somewhat easier but more importantly his larger thing is he's kept open or allowed to remain open those businesses that are, are, are doing you know, Building, as I said, building hospitals uh, is, I think, um, much more um, uh, essential uh, or necessary in the, uh, in the immediate sense than, than being able to go to the library. That's an inconvenience. And I use libraries all the time, by the way, for the record. Uh, but increasingly, we can go online to libraries as well. So I thought that they struck the right balance in keeping essentially keeping open the supply chains whether it be food supply chains or a drink supply chain and i mean by that milk soft drinks mm-hmm. wine beer liquor as well as keeping open the construction supply chain and saying hey, look if it isn't if it, you don't fall into those broad categories or support services to those categories lawyers accountants then you're going to close so I don't know, in terms of GDP, I don't know if maybe two-thirds of GDP in Ontario was closed, and maybe one-third is open, but they didn't close it down, close down the economy completely. And, and I do think that that was a positive step.
0: So how will this affect Ontario, considering this is, far, is as far as we go? How long can we do this?
6: Well, that's my point. Uh, we saw the first numbers, 500,000 applied for unemployment. And I just want to put this out there. We all have excellent safety nets. Um, You know, we have uh, uh, social assistance, we have subsidized housing, we have unemployment insurance. And as compared to other OECD countries, we do a very, very good job at it because I've seen the comparative data. Uh, But they were never designed, unemployment insurance system was never designed to process 500,000 people in one week. They're designed to handle 20,000 a week. Mm -hmm. And so when you have something like this, and then you say, okay, well, what if there's another 500,000 two weeks from now? And what if there's another million after that? Does anybody believe that a society can sustain can, stay, can sustain itself when the whole place is locked up and shut down? And that's my point. Yes, we can do it for a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks. I support closing the public schools to the end of June. I agree. But now let's get step back and say, can we do it for 18 months? Can we do it for a year? And I don't believe – I'll answer my own question. I don't believe we can.
0: So you but don't think we'll see a full a closure? approach? So you don't think we will see a full closure of any sort?
6: I, don't, I cannot see that full closure because and then we're talking closing down grocery stores. Yeah. We're talking closing down. You know, people can quibble and say the LCBO should be closed down. Uh, okay. Uh, but, you know, we can't close down grocery stores. People have to eat. Can't close down drug stores, pharmacies. And what
0: happens when all of this is lifted? There's going to be a mad dash in all these people at the grocery store or wherever trying to get all their supplies.
6: Well, that's why the economists are predicting. and It doesn't mean they're right. But I find the logic compelling that they're predicting so-called V recovery, where you have a sharp, sharp collapse, very sharp downward That's the downward ascent on the left side of the V. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to an end, you have a very sharp recovery as people, all that pent up uh, demand and pent up spending uh, comes out. And and uh, I, I want to make this just very quickly for run out of time. This isn't hitting everybody. I mean, anybody in the public sector is still getting paid. I'm getting paid. I'm in the broader public sector. All the teachers, all the professors, we're getting our paychecks. People in the big banks, they're getting it. So it's really our young people in the gig economy and in the restaurants and accommodation and retail who are bearing the brunt of this. And I'm worried for them. That's why I'm making these comments. I'm not being frivolous about the coronavirus. I'm more vulnerable than probably 95 or 98 percent of the population. Because of my age and because I've got rheumatoid arthritis, I'm very acutely aware, which is why I stay in my house all the time, by the way. <laughs> I'm in my house 99% mm. of the time. Only, I only go out for groceries because I'm aware of my risk. But I'll, I'll worry about my risk. I'll deal with my risk. And I, I don't want to destroy the lives of millions of young people just to save Ian. I, I just I, I think that's a bridge too far.
0: Ian Lee has been with the Sprout School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated.